Okay, so welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Index with me, Joe Wallen, and me, Dashar Jetty. So it's been, uh, been a typically busy week uh, this week, covering Pakistan from, from my side, a lot of writing, a lot of features. Uh, but I've still got my most important writing to come. I've got a best man speech to write. Uh, I had a trip to, to Germany next week, um, which I'm very excited about. And what have you been up to, Dashar? What's, uh, what's been piquing your interest? So last week, you might remember that we covered the Karnataka elections and we sort of predicted that the BJP is going to be facing a tough time. Well, it turns out that the predictions came true. The Congress swept Karnataka with 135 seats in a house of 216. Uh, the BJP got something like 66 seats, which is less than half the number of seats that the Congress has right now. But I don't want to focus so much on the, the political aspect of this, which you can follow on Indian news. But I want to explain why, Joe, this is important for the upcoming 2024 elections, particularly for Western audience. So first of all, India is a federal state and control of the individual states is really important because of fundraising and resources. States have massive financial resources in terms of contract allocations, in terms of spending, and Indian political parties tend to find ways to convert this into financial muscle to power the election campaign. And Karnataka with Bangalore is the single most important state right now that the Congress controls in its own. So that has serious implications for 2024. They finally have something of a fighting chance. Secondly, it's a huge boost for the Congress image, which, as you can imagine, has been taking a beating in the past few years. Uh, Rahul Gandhi recently completed his uh, Unite India trek, the Bharat Jori Yatra, and he passed a lot of districts in the state of Karnataka during this trek. So it sort of vindicates his approach and it starts making him look more and more like a serious player for uh, the prime ministerial position in 2024. But even more importantly, it's really rallied opposition parties to see the BJP lose such a huge and important state. And non-BJP parties across India, they have hopes now that they can actually come together in a common alliance to defeat the BJP. Now, a lot of political observers might say that these sort of unwieldy coalitions haven't worked in the past. But here's the difference. The BJP has been horrible to many of its allies. Even traditional allies like the Shiv Sena in Maharashtra or the, uh, the Akali Dal in Punjab, uh, who have always been with the BJP, the BJP, once they come to power with them, they steadily muscle them out of their own state. Uh, with what some of its allies, like the Shiv Sena, it's actually broken that ally in half. So now the driving motivation is not necessarily to come to power, but to make sure that they can survive on their own. Because unchecked BJP power has led to the decline of a lot of uh, political parties, even in the state area. So it's going to be an interesting election and one to look out for. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, it's been, I, th- I think the most interesting interesting part of the, the election is that the BJP had really pushed kind of pro-Hindu inductive policies in Karnataka. Uh, over the last couple of years, I mean, infamously banning uh, female students from wearing the hijab, which, which became quite a global story. Um, Congress seems to have, have triumphed on a ticket, which really pushed development and more pro-economic policies, uh, which is interesting because the BJP, we think of them as, as an electoral machine. Um, Karnataka being one of India's wealthiest states, you know, is this a sign of things to come in the future? As you know, as other Indian states continue to develop um, and wealth increases, you know, are we going to have to see the BJP change this kind of winning formula that they've had in the past towards one that, that is more economic focused uh, and less less kind of pro pro inductor? Uh, yeah, I think that for me that was the most interesting thing that that came out of this election. Certainly, one to watch for for other states coming up. So, yeah, what about you, Joe? What have you been following? 
So, so additionally, we've had the exciting news this week that India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been granted a state visit uh, to the United States next month. Now, Mr. Modi will be the first Indian Prime Minister to go to Washington since Manmohan Singh in 2009. And this is significant because, from what I'm, I'm told, Mr. Modi's been pushing for a state visit to the US for, for over a year now um, in order to develop and deepen that key alliance with the US, certainly across the Indo-Pacific. Now, we're expecting talks not only to focus on China, but also on, on deepening developing trade. India is pushing for technology from the US to become the fifth country in the world to manufacture aircraft aircraft engines, which would be huge for the country. Um, not only this, uh, but we can expect talks over drones and other defense deals, as the US is keen for India to wean India away from its dependency on Russia. And the visit is sure to bring Mr. Modi fantastic optics uh, in India as we head to next year's general election. But now turning to our main topic for the week. So Joe, as our listeners might remember, we started this podcast, our first episode uh, on Pakistan. And there we interviewed two people uh, who gave us a really great idea about the economic and political situation right now in Pakistan. Dr. Mifta Ismail, the ex-finance minister, and Michael Kugelman, a globally renowned South Asian expert. But South Asian politics these days, much like the Pakistani cricket team of the 1980s, keeps on getting drawn back to one particular individual. The man of the match himself, Imran Khan. On May 9th, Imran Khan was dragged after allegedly being beaten from an Islamabad courthouse by hundreds of Pakistan's paramilitary. The shocking footage made headlines around the world, and in the days that followed, thousands of Mr Khan's angry supporters took to the streets across Pakistan, torching military buildings. Anywhere between 9 and 47 people are said to have been killed in reprisal attacks by the country's army and police. While Mr. Khan was released on May 11th after the country's Supreme Court intervened, thousands of his supporters and the senior leadership of his party, the Pakistan Tariq e Insaf, known as the PTI, have since been jailed. The current crisis really dates back to the end of 2021. Now, in Pakistan, the establishment wields more power than its politicians. If you fall out with the establishment, you don't last very long in power. In fact, not one of Pakistan's prime ministers has ever completed their term. And Mr Khan was to prove no difference. In April 2022, he was ousted in a no-confidence vote and replaced as prime minister by Shabazz Sharif. The establishment are thought to have helped facilitate his removal from power so they could replace Mr Khan with someone they could better control. But rather than going quietly, Mr Khan has, over the last year, blamed the country's establishment and the ruling Sharifs for ousting him undemocratically and pointed the finger of blame at them for Pakistan's current economic crisis, the worst in its history. Mr Khan has really played the narrative of the man of the people well. His popularity has soared and he was on track to sweep Pakistan's next general elections scheduled for the autumn, but the establishment seemed determined not to let that happen. So we're delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Avinash Paliwal to Beyond the Indus this week. Dr. Paliwal is an associate professor in international relations at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, incidentally where I did my master's many, many years ago now. Uh, he's the author of two books um, and his latest, uh, India's Near East and New History, will be published next year. And the book will look at the history of India's Northeast and the political and economic narrative in the region today, as well as analysing India's relationship with Bangladesh and Myanmar. So welcome to the podcast, Avinash. How are you? Thank you for having me over, Joe and Tashar. I'm very well. 
So, Avinash, um, Imran Khan, uh, since his ouster in April 2022, back then he was one of the more unpopular figures in Pakistan. Now we see his popularity has increased considerably. From the viewpoint of someone who follows Pakistan but maybe is not necessarily tuned in to this every single event or detail, it's a little bit confusing. How has Imran Khan specifically grown his popularity so much? What have his actions been since his ouster? And what is his agenda or strategy through his actions? Do you think it's a well-thought-out approach or do you think he's made crucial mistakes or uh, stumbling blocks through the way he's handled this entire crisis? Sure, thank you for this set of very important questions. And I think the core aspect here to for me to underline is that, you know, like the rise of any populist anywhere in the world, a lot of the actions that Imran Khan has done may not be as thought through as one would expect them to be, right? This is a man who has been, who was already very popular, not just in Pakistan, but globally as a cricketer before he even joined politics, active politics. He did join active politics in late 1990s, early 2000s, building up on his career as a cricketer and a public sort of a figure. And over the past couple of decades, broadly put, he has basically stuck around on the margins of Pakistani politics. By the time we see a lot of tension growing between the traditional political parties, be that the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz or the PPP led by the Bhuttos or any other political outfit, which was, you know, even even the more conservative political formations which were part of part of that rubric, we saw them trying to assert control over policy making which the military, which believes it's at the vanguard of Pakistani politics, it began to see that as unacceptable to a certain extent, whether it's on foreign policy issues related to the Afghanistan war, peace talks with India, the situation in Kashmir. We saw that sort of, that dislocation play out in the sort of judicial coup led by the former army chief, General Bajwa in 2017, of the former prime minister, Nawaz Sharif. He, at least in that point in time, threatened the political bar of the then army chief, Kamar Javed Bajwa, who felt that it was necessary to kind of tame the PMLN, who he believed could dislocate his power. And this is where, when they start shopping around, when the military starts shopping around for alternatives or alternative politicians they could work with, someone who can represent the civilian political face, someone whose presence as the prime minister could continue to the facade of democratic politics in Pakistan, but also someone who can share the responsibility of economic dysfunction moving forward. The only viable candidate at that point in time was Imran Khan. This is a moment when Imran Khan's politics begins to shift. So he starts changing his politics to a considerable extent away from the more secular centrist politics that he espoused to a more conservative sort of a nationalist version that you would expect, you know, the middle class Pakistani sort of electorate to associate with, especially when they're facing, you know, economic strain or feel that there is a deficit of national sort of, of nationalism broadly put or national confidence. He actually captured quite a lot of the imagination of the middle class when he came to power in 2017. That was not a neat electoral victory. He was still far from having a majority, but he was able to bring people on street, out on street, in his support against the traditional political parties. And this we saw play out in his rise as prime minister in 2018 after the ouster of uh, Nawaz Sharif. Now, this is where the central rub comes, uh, Tushar, right? This is a moment where you're seeing a duality of sorts. Imran Khan, a traditional cricketer, a politician, does command people's attention. He does get people out on the street, but does not command electoral majority. For that, he needs an ally who can basically swing the machine in his favor. 
And this is where his core ally, which is the Pakistani military establishment, comes in. And Imran Khan, when he comes to power, then has is also comes with the tag of both being popular, but also being quote unquote a selected prime minister, selected by the military establishment. And both these ideas, quite opposed into each other, quite a contradiction. This continues to feature in Imran Khan's politics from day one of him becoming prime minister in 2018. From that point onwards, I think we need to understand his journey in a different light. The 2018 to 2022 premiership that he enjoyed, there was just one point agenda that I believe he had, is to create his own core constituency, which would allow him to win an election on his own electoral merit, rather than rely on the Pakistani military. This is a man who is now the prime minister who wants to assert himself on policy decisions and who believes that he has the charm and the charisma to expand his constituents. But for that, he needs to take on not only the traditional political parties in Punjab, but also the military establishment. And this is where the politics of Imran Khan and the politics of the chief of army staff or the institution of the army starts to diverge. We do see this happen quite strongly on how they deal with the Afghan Taliban, but definitely so in their relationship with the Americans and the Indians, right? You can see there is a, you know, the Pulwama Balakut standoff that happened in February 2019. You still see both these political leaders, Bajwa and, and Khan, on the same page. But you also see that Imran Khan believes that he can, you know, his response to India's aggression as they saw it at that point in time has increased his popularity both within the army and outside. And he came to believe sometime in 2019, 2020, that he has enough political power and political appeal, both inside the institution and outside, to be able to decide who the next army chief of Pakistan will be. Now, this is where you see something very fundamental. Every time before this moment, a Pakistani civilian prime minister thought that they can determine who the next chief would be, almost always created fiction between the institution, which has its own institutional kind of logics, which has its own kind of, you know, promotion schedules. And this is where there was a lot of strain that emerged. And part of the reason was also because General Bajwa, who, who served as the chief of army staff before, had already taken one extension, which had created a lot of sort of tensions within the army, with many corps commanders harboring resentment against his decision to kind of, you know, uh, take an extension because it dislocates their own career ladders to that extent. And Imran Khan caught that. He really realized that that resentment against uh, Bajwa's decision to take an extension is something that he can exploit in his favor, and he did. The split that we saw play out over the last two, two years or two, three years between uh, former chief of ISF, Faiz Hamid and, and Kamar Bajwa, there was very clearly uh, coalitions developing where Faiz Hamid was very clearly sub being supported by Imran Khan. Bajwa was increasingly regretting his decision to oust Shari Sharif. So I think this train and the way Imran Khan has dealt with it is something which has only increased his popularity. You asked earlier, why has his popularity soared so much? There are two reasons, structural and temporal reasons in my view for that. Many people in Pakistan who are now facing the brunt of economic crisis in some very literal manner, right? You simply don't have money in your pocket to buy your daily items, daily goods at times. They believe that one of the main reasons for that is the kind of corruption, the structural chronic corruption that the establishment, as it is called, has engaged in for decades, right? And this establishment, it includes the current government, the PDM, which is basically the, the, the traditional political parties and their allies, which is the military. So there is a huge growing resentment against the military in that sense. 
the fact that the military has not done anything visible in Kashmir after India abrogated Article 370 was seen as a further kind of compromise on national interest. For that reason, you can see Imran Khan very openly criticizing not just India, but also the military for not doing much about this, right? There's a pressure, there's a constituency there. And that you can see spill over over the since his ouster. People believe that, look, he was selected and then he started doing things which people believed were in the benefit of the people. And then he was kicked out by the establishment who started finding him uncomfortable. So anything which, which you know, all the fault lines of emotional fault lines that are active in Pakistani politics, he's basically opened all those chapters up and he's exploiting them and people like that. He might not have a policy solution for the economy. He might not be able to negotiate a deal with the IMF, but he makes people feel good in their own, in in his own way, in his own kind of, you know, with his own charm, with his own uh, personality, with his own rhetoric. And that explains, this, you know, the soaring sort of uh, popularity. On that, if you put him in jail or if you tried an assassination attempt on him, which which happened before, before I mean, the, he, he was shot on the leg, you, you're basically making a martyr. A martyr who has capitalized on the heartland of Pakistani politics and has been able to turn the people against what we consider to be a sacred cow in Pakistani politics, which is the military today. So I think we spoke uh, earlier this week. I mean, we discussed at length, uh, I mean, I should, about Mr. Khan's cult of personality and about how he is sort of a once in an era, once in a generation figure uh, in South Asian politics, his ability to, to attract such huge support and fervent support. We haven't seen this for quite some time. Um, you mentioned Mr. Khan survived the assassination attempts in November. I mean, Khan's popularity was surging again. Uh, I was continuing to search, sorry, I mean, according to opinion polls uh, in February, uh, his approval rating was over 60% compared to, to 31% for the incumbent uh, Shabazz Sharif. So it's clear that he was the favoured man in Pakistan. But why is Mr. Khan now facing so many criminal cases if he is so popular? I believe that we're up to 142 cases now that he's facing. And then why was he finally arrested last Tuesday before being bailed? In terms of the cult of personality, you're absolutely right. I mean, populism in South Asia is not new, but the kind of cult populism that we are seeing play out in, in Pakistan today, and that to give the military not in, in sync with the military something very unique. Now, in terms of corruption cases, again, just to give you a bit of a context, using corruption cases, using criminal cases against politicians is a time-tested tactic in subcontinental politics to, to, to basically marginalize or to tie the politician up and hinder their political rise or their political operations as, you know, in some degree of smoothness. The moment we the split began between the military and Imran Khan, a lot of the cases were seen as a tool to basically tame the populists, right? So the one of the some of the two most prominent cases are the Al Qaeda Trust case and, and the Tosha Khana case. And both of them are basically, you know, the cases are that he first did not declare a lot of the expensive gifts that he received as prime minister when he was serving, which he had to serve give to the cabinet uh, to the Tosha Khana, but he did do that. He sold those gifts for, for cash. And the other is that he used his power, you know, to, to buy a contract to build an educational institution along with his wife, Bushra Bibi, who is now also being roped in. Now, these are the two, fund, some of the two kind of most prominent cases that have been leveled against him. And the, the number of cases are directly proportional to how big a threat he's being seen as uh, by the military establishment. I think at this point in time, and a very important thing to note is that these are bailable offenses. And this creates a dilemma. Even if the number of cases are, at, as you mentioned, 142, if they're bailable, then 
that's not good enough for the army because he still continues to mobilize support. He still remains in political action and tries to kind of, you know, both target the government for its economic failure and lack of governance and for military for dislocating Pakistan's quote-unquote democratic processes, right? So now what he has seen, and this is absolutely fundamental, Joe, the army has taken a decision to actually take this whole thing away from civilian courts and charge both Imran Khan and Pakistan Tehrikins of activists using the Army Act and the Official Secrets Act. Now, that is a very different ballgame. That's basically signaling that not only will we try civilians in a military court, but we'll also be court-martialing insiders within the military who we believe to have supported, whether tacitly or openly, uh, the rise of, uh, of Imran Khan and the protests that we saw on 9th of May. We know that one of the co-commanders of the Lahore Corps, whose house was uh, breached, burnt, and, you know, he has already been sacked for not taking adequate action. Now, every corps commander has a security detail uh, in active duty or in deployment for at least 130 soldiers who could have, he could have actually contained that that whole thing if he had wanted, but that did not happen. In fact, he was talking to protesters, trying to calm them down rather than rather than open fire, which created a hole, which opens up a whole Pandora's box of inter intra-military politicking, right? Moving forward, I'm very confident, as the Shah earlier was also mentioning, that you know this is a very fluid situation. It's developing at a very quick pace. As we record this this podcast, the likelihood of uh, Imran Khan's kind of residence being surrounded by the police and another arrest in the offing, as we have seen for other PTI workers from Shireen Mazari to Fawad Chaudhary in the offing, that is pretty likely to go ahead as we speak. And you can very clearly see that the military establishment is pushing back, pushing back hard. And at some point, it would not be a matter of how many cases, it would be a matter of how to make sure that you basically get Imran Khan out of the political landscape for the next substantial period, you know, whether it's two years, whether it's 10 years, however they feel comfortable, however long they think that is needed to keep him out of play, to make sure that he does not remain a threat to the institution. Sure. So following Mr. Khan's arrest uh, last week, his party called on supporters uh, to take to the streets uh, to, to save Pakistan. I mean, it's quite, it quite a clear request. Now, the country is no stranger to political unrest over the years, as I'm sure many of our listeners know. So why were the protests that followed Mr. Khan's arrest so significant last week? You know, was this the first time where we saw you know, the Pakistani public taking on the military head on? It's not the first time when Pakistani public as such has taken on the, 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 the Pakistani military head on. I mean, this is a country which has raging insurgencies since for decades at, at, you know, at large. I mean, if you look at Balochistan, there has been a very rich history of anti-military, anti-establishment protests for, for decades at end, right, from 60s and 70s. But the most pivotal case of populism kind of succeeding and also the Pakistani military fa failing to contain is, is, is the case of Bangladesh. I mean, we forget that the East Pakistan, the Bangladesh movement was became a very powerful populist nationalist movement by Pakistani Bengalis. So in terms of the pushback against the military as such, Joe, it's not unique. What is unique is the kind of pushback that the military has faced in Punjab. Now, Punjab is the heartland for the Pakistani mommy's recruitment. Punjab is the heartland of most civilian political parties Sort of, you know, this is where they really want to have a corpus of electorate, a loyal electorate, if they want to dominate the political landscape of Pakistan. 
we have not seen this kind of pushback, political pushback by people against the general headquarters itself. Now, the, the symbolism of it is absolutely unique. The fact that a co-commander's house was burned down, that is unique. The fact that the ISI headquarters were targeted, which is, which is just unprecedented. This is what makes this moment so significant. And this explains why the Pakistani army chief, General Asim Munir, has reacted by calling this as Pakistan's 9-11. I think they did not expect this kind of escalation to the arrest of Imran Khan. This is what makes it significant. Of course, the fact is that a lot of the internet and, and you know, basically the, the media in Pakistan has been gagged quite considerably, has stands quite heavily compromised, and social media feeds are few and far between. So we don't know the actual landscape of protests playing out on the ground as of now. But we do know from whatever little we can follow in, in the news cycle and social media that this is not insignificant, even if you keep the symbolism of it about. So we have seen a lot of protests happening. Another factor that we miss in this, Joanne, which is very important, I think, is the fact that historically Imran Khan has been very sympathetic to the Taliban, both in Afghanistan and the Pakistani Taliban. The TTP has not yet spoken in in its military, in the military sense of the term, as to what it plans to do about this whole thing, right? And this is something which we need to keep this whole thing, the whole aspect in, in perspective, depending on how... Imran Khan reacts to Shah Rulia mentioned that he's going to give a speech to the nation. There is a very good possibility that we see a very serious uptick in TTP violence moving forward. Uh, and we have seen that before. Whenever Imran Khan was in a tight corner with the military, you saw an uptick in TTP attacks in different parts of the country, which helped ease some of the pressure on Imran Khan in a political sense by militarily engaging the cause which Imran Khan saw were going against him in some which way. Even when this protest in Islamabad and Lahore happened after May 9th, there were some very serious attacks against um, in the corps which were being commanded by Lieutenant General Asif Ghafoor, if I'm, if I'm not... And Gafur is considered traditionally to be one of the more sympathetic co-commanders to Imran Khan, right? So, so we need to see in the days ahead how the militant landscape evolves in parallel to the, the protest landscape. And that is what makes this situation so volatile and so significant. You know, how significant are reports uh, of divisions within the Pakistani uh, army? And how could that play out as well over the next couple of weeks? So this is one of the biggest, you know, biggest question mark as far as Pakistani politics today goes, right? We do know for a fact that there has been a lot of turbulence within the Pakistani military, especially in the top echelons. And we now have evidence of that, at least recent evidence in which you saw the Bajwa Hamid rivalry play out. We do know that General Munir is has been a long-term confidant of General Bajwa and also nursed a grievance against Imran Khan when he was Prime Minister because Imran Khan ousted Munir uh, as chief of ISI and brought in Fez Hamid as his own favorite, uh, you know, after the Pulwama-Balakot uh, occurrence uh, in, you know, the standoff with India. That is when uh, Munir was the chief of ISI. So you can see that there is a lot of, there are constituencies, even within the co-commanders kind of uh, unit, who are very sympathetic to Imran Khan and his advocacy, who are considered to be broadly hardliners, who want Pakistan to take a hardline both in Kashmir and elsewhere, who supported the rise of Taliban in in Afghanistan in 2021, but were eventually sidelined. So, so that, that those divisions that we see play out in the society broadly put between the civilian political parties, the PDM and the PTI, 
they have inflicted the Pakistani army to the army is not immune of these political and societal divisions, right? Now, if you would ask officers who are more junior, you know, colonel or major level officers or some or the soldiers down, uh, there is, from what I understand, a lot of sympathy for Imran Khan and the cause of Imran Khan, if not the man as such. Um, and that that creates a lot of problem for the top leadership to assert itself. Now, what we have seen, what we do know is that these tensions have not been critical enough to lead to a proper breakdown of the institution as such. Um, and this is where you see the institutional kind of legacies really come and dominate the 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 situation that, okay, there is a lot of tension between certain co-commanders with others, and many of them do not want to see or had not wanted to see Munir become this chief. So those grievances are also there. But that does not necessarily mean that there will be a complete fracture at in in you know an overt fracture, so to say. There's a lot of internal politicking. You can see those play out, but it has not led to fracture. That's one point. And I do not foresee a fracture coming in the Pakistani army. I think the institution has so many vested interests of its own, not just political, but also economic. This is also one of the biggest economic venture of Pakistan rather than just being a military which fights wars. So I do not think that there will be a full fracture at the top, but I do think that the divisions are acute enough today to foster the kind of uncertainty that we see play out. Now, how do you know? How do we know that this is actually the case even today? We do know it was the case between Bajwa and Fez. The kind of response that we have seen from Munira was about three days, four days, actually underscores that he's 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 an embattled general who's fighting back very hard. Why? First of all, we have started seeing statements coming out from the ISPR, which is saying that, oh, everyone, all co-commanders are behind the chief. All the, the visuals of co-commanders meeting and talking to the chief and accepting what the chief has done. This is something that used to happen exactly when Bajwa was chief. When Bajwa wanted to signal the world that everything is okay and we know how to deal with our internal differences, suddenly you will have an edited clip of the co-commanders conference coming out in public. So you can see that, you know, the, if the public messaging is so overtly many, when an army has to spell out that they are not divided, it is a sign that the, the divisions are actually pretty acute. And I do believe the fact that, the you know, Munir's decision to not impose martial law when there are all the conditions, political and economic, to do so is not because he does not want to. That's simply because his army does not want that to happen and he cannot prevail on, you know, co-commanders who disagree with him. So it's interesting because we talk about the army, but the army is just one component of what Imran Khan supporters call the establishment, right? And I want to focus on two other components. One is the PDM, which is the current Shabai Sharia-led government. And we'll get to that in a second. But the other interesting player is the Supreme Court. And one of the more interesting bits of news we've seen come out of this drama is that you see the current PDM government supporters actually protest outside and even try to invade the Supreme Court, accusing the court of favoritism. I want you to talk about how the Supreme Court has dealt with this entire Imran Khan issue. Is there any truth to the accusations by the current government, the PDM, that the Supreme Court has repeatedly indulged in favoritism towards Imran Khan? Or is this just another tactic by the PDM to make sure that the court doesn't bail out Imran Khan and continues to keep him detained? Tushar, again, thanks for that excellent question. And judiciary is really the kind of third power pole that has emerged over the over the over, place from 2007 onwards in Pakistani politics in ways that were unanticipated at least then. 
judiciary played a very important role in the ousting of former chief of army staff and former president Parvez Musharraf in 2007 when you know when they basically rose up against the the military regime now there are two or three elements to it i don't think the pdm's accusation is inaccurate that there is there is favoritism there is favoritism the judiciary of pakistan with its growing power as as an entity that asserts itself in settling disputes between political parties and the army and different political parties has also been increasingly fragmented what we saw play out post 2007 after musharraf is ousted is the pakistani army feeling the need and political parties feeling the need to have basically judges and advocates who would be doing their political bidding in the garb of lawyers in in these institutions whether it's the lahore high court islamabad high court peshawar high court or the supreme court of pakistan and what we see happen is a political tussle playing out between lawyers in different high courts and the supreme court bench it's, you know the bar and bench itself so what has happened on one hand you have you see an increasingly assertive or at times defiant court but also a very fragmented judiciary and the degree to which the pakistani judiciary is fragmented even though it holds more power is absolutely unprecedented right so the accusation that the supreme court is to a certain degree compromised is not an inaccurate comp- uh, accusation but the fact of the matter is that uh, that cuts both ways that accusation it's not just pro imran judges who are there there are also judges who are very much favoring the establishment or or the pdm for that matter and different high courts right so so this is something which is worth keeping in mind when we look at the judiciary that there is a feeling both by civilian political parties who are in the government today in that formation or in opposition or the military that you can actually tamper with the judicial processes even though they they you sang the sanctity of the ruling has to be maintained or respected to a certain degree at least right uh, and that explains why the military has decided to step aside the civilian judiciary completely by invoking the army act and the official secrets act because they believe that just tampering with the judges or just trying to have have your favorites pass a ruling which you like is not going to be good enough anymore you want your people to basically be the judge and the jury and everything and the executioner if required and that's where you can see that The, the the army is so fed up now by playing politics and judicial politics that they they have basically said that entire question aside and said we will take care of it directly and uh just a bit of breaking news for our listeners even as we speak the army seems to have surrounded imran khan's house there's some claims that he's hiding terrorists 30 to 40 terrorists in his house and he is declaring that his arrest is imminent so we'll uh, keep you guys in uh, the loop as the situation develops but coming to just as a follow up to that question i want to ask about the other poll in this which is the pdm now to people new to pakistani politics the pdm currently constitutes almost every other major political party in pakistan that's what they needed to assemble a coalition to oppose imran khan this is including both shahbaz sharif brother of uh, nawaz sharif a former prime minister as well as his long term opponent bilawal zardari bhutto of the famous bhutto dynasty of the ppp what have they been doing through this when the army asked, helped oust imran khan this government came into power and it was assumed that they could complete a full term not only because of uh, imran khan's problems but also because it was a sensitive economic time which we'll get to in the next question but how have they been handling imran khan's antics so to speak through this entire time they have been struggling to share to handle imran khan i mean they have actually relied on the coercive apparatus of the army to deal with imran khan and that's what 
we are effectively seeing uh, as playing out on the ground, right? The popular support that the PDM has today is absolutely negligible on the ground, right? Even though we saw the recent protests by the Jamiat Ulema Islam, right, uh, which were protesting in front of the uh, Supreme Court, that's one of the conservative formations that offers some degree of street muscle to the government. Uh, as a sign of counter-punching the street power of the PTI, the Pakistan Tariqin stuff. But the overall popularity of both the Sharifs and the Bhutto Zardari clan is absolutely at rock bottom. And they know this. So so you can see that the Sharif, I mean, Shaibar Sharif is the Prime Minister, he's been quite focused on fixing the economy, failingly so. But Bilawal is basically using this time to position himself for a bigger role in the future. You can see that also, right? This is a man who's not in a hurry, whose party has not performed very well electorally. It's still there, but it's not a national party as it used to be in the 60s and 70s or even the 90s when when Bilabal's mother, I mean, uh, Benazir Bhutto was a very powerful leader at a national scale. I mean, Bilabal is basically biding his time and will go with whoever helps him bide that time and build his political career, right? There are credible reports coming in that the military is considering him as a future prime minister. So this is what the traditional political parties are doing. And they are struggling with this, as we can see, right? They have been asking the military to use force increasingly so because they have not had a credible response to the kind of mobilization that Imran Khan demonstrated and the kind of political pushback against almost any policy that they come up with. So we have a lot of big problems, but no clear solutions or even heading in the direction of finding a practical solution. The kind, I mean, the government has been, of Pakistan has been negotiating with the IMF for months at end now. The Bangladeshis have already received their loan, have already received the money for those kind of negotiation, a $4 billion loan that you know that they received from IMF. The Pakistanis have not. And the sole reason the IMF is reluctant to give the money is they're not sure where this will go. They're not sure whether this whether the government is even competent enough to use the money they'll give to to assuage the sort of, you know, to bring usher in the kind of reforms that are required. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because uh, I was watching an interview with uh, Najam Sethi and he said that the understanding when the PDM took over was that the military would give them unfailing support until the elections that are coming up this year. And in return, they would implement the tough IMF reforms that were required of them. And it seemed that Imran Khan has destabilized them. So just a quick follow up to that question. Do you think this economic instability is going to favor Khan both politically and if he gets to compete in the elections uh, coming up? Instability of any sort, Tushar, favors populists, especially conservative populists. That's a political science kind of tried and tested sort of concept that you like, right? Populists require some grievance anywhere in the world, right? You need to have a grievance to be able to um, marshal people together to challenge it. Whether that grievance is actually founded in fact or liberated from fact is a different matter. Till the time people believe there is a grievance to marshal around a leader, right? To firm the rally around the flag. So you're absolutely right. The kind of economic dysfunction, deeper dysfunction, will only expand Imran Khan's popularity as a potential messiah. The problem of the of the matter is that his four years in power actually contributed to that dysfunction. It did not help us huge absolutely anything. 
if anything, it worsened the situation, right? We saw this economic crisis coming long back. Uh, any economist, you know, with basic understanding of Pakistani economy would tell you that this is a very serious situation you're headed in. You're basically reliant on external debt and an external investment for your basic infrastructural growth. And you don't have revenue generation capacity in your core, you know, even in your industrial heartlands outside of Punjab. So if, if you want to develop Balochistan or the Gawadar port, you need to have basic security, which you don't. Um, so the Chinese also realized that the hard way that they can pay, bring in the China-Pakistan economic corridor, no problems, uh, but they'll not be able to get much out of it. And that's something Beijing has realized very painfully over the years, that you know investing in Pakistan is one thing, but getting returns from those investments is a very different ballgame, right? This is how, I mean, the kind of economic dysfunction this country is facing. It's an it's a generational crisis that they are facing as far as the economy is concerned. Not a few years. It won't take them a decade or two to get out of this. This will take a very, very long time. And yes, it will continue to feel, fuel that kind of grievance which uh, keeps people like Imran Khan in in so much appeal, even if they can't actually resolve any of the problems which which they need some degree of consensus and some degree of sanity to address some policy issues. Absolutely. So just moving moving forward, conscious of, of, of time a little bit, I think looking at what comes next um, or where we where we go from go from here, looking at the, the response from the authorities and from the establishment, uh, as you said, we've seen them take a hard line uh, against Khan and his supporters and against the judiciary. Do you think this is one of the key policies that we can expect to see them take going forward? So, for example, the talk of, of criminal charges being brought against the Chief Justice uh, for baying Mr. Khan. Um, we saw you know, the PDM and their supporters storming the red zone on Monday, uh, seemingly to intimidate the judiciary, sort of to send a message, don't bail Mr. Khan again. Um, and talks of, of PTI protesters being tried in military courts. This seems to be like a, a broad approach to try and cut off Mr. Khan's supporter base, or at least intimidate them going forward. Do you think this is what we're likely to see uh, over the next couple of weeks? Most definitely, Joe. I think the army right now is absolutely determined to, to marginalize Imran Khan or the phenomenon of Imran Khan, right? Ideally, they would want to uh, undercut his support base, but they have failed to actually limit his popularity. In fact, his popularity has grown, and I think we have reached it, it sort of a threshold where bothering with countering his popular appeal is just not going to work. So they're really going for the jugular right now. They're going for Imran. There's no two ways about that. Uh, and I do think that, you know, given how much coercive power uh, the Pakistani army and the policing establishment, which is commanded, by the way, by Pakistani army, the Pakistani rangers who do a lot of paramilitary policing in cities of Pakistan, Karachi, Islamabad, Lahore, they are under command of serving military officers, right? Uh, in this situation, the institute, institution which has guns and which has most scores of capabilities will continue to reign supreme. You will see a pushback against Imran. You will see the military try to kind of completely marginalize or defang the Pakistan Tariqa Insaf. They will deconstruct or kind of, you know, completely break the institutional moorings of PTI if there are any as such. They will sow dissension within the ranks as well moving forward. Uh, so this is something, you know, again, you asked me what next. This is something which I can see happening not even in the next two weeks, in the next two, three days this will happen. It, I mean, as Tushar mentioned, this is already playing out. If they've already surrounded his residence uh, and there are rumors of him going into hiding, this is already playing out in real time, the crackdown on, on Imran Khan and his supporters, right? Um, 
the question, the bigger question which we need to ask for Pakistan and not just Imran is what next for the country. And I think that's a very worrisome situation here. Um, I do, you know, once Imran is arrested, the, the ball will be in the court of those people who support him. Will they be able to continue coming back and mounting protests against the armed forces? If not, then I think for a brief period of time, we see Imran Khan's active politics being completely barricaded and it depends whether people continue to believe in him or not. Uh, how they actually execute the trial is going to be the next big question. Is this going to be a public trial? Is this going to be a trial uh, in closed doors behind, without, with no cameras? If it's a public trial, he might become a martyr, a political martyr before he becomes an actual martyr if, if this heads towards execution, which I think there is a distinct possibility. So these are the issues that we need to see at the beginning of this crisis on May 9th of May, I was looking at two basic collision of two power centers or two centers of gravity of power in Pakistan, which is the people who are supporting Imran Khan, the populist, and the army itself, right? The judiciary, the the PDM, and all are important as side actors, but it is the clash between the army and the populist. First, the populist spoke, and then we wanted to see whether the army will push back. The army is pushing back. Now the ball is back in the court of Imran Khan and his supporters. If they're able to continue push back, then we don't know which direction this will take. So, uh, Abhinash, you've highlighted the current turmoil in Pakistani politics, and it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the coming weeks, forget the coming months. But Pakistan is due for an election. Imran Khan is immensely popular. If, let's say, if he does return to power, what are the implications for Pakistan, domestically perhaps, but more importantly, I think, internationally? We know there's a power struggle right now between the U.S. and China, and Pakistan's playing a key role. But I also want to ask about the more regional implications for that with respect to India and Afghanistan. So maybe give us an idea of what you predict is going to happen if he returns to power. Thanks for the question, Tushar. I mean, just, you know, also to kind of uh, covering Joe's question earlier as to what might happen in the next two weeks, I do think that Khan will be put against, put behind bars again and there's, it's unlikely that he'll get a bail this time around. So whatever the army can do to get him out of the political system right now, to put him behind bars, is something that they will they will try to do in the next two weeks. And and let's see how the trial plays out. And if he does come back to power, as you asked, you know, this will have serious implications for for the region and perhaps much more. Right? He will, if he comes back to power, first and foremost, try to fix all his opponents within the Pakistani army. So we don't know whether General Munir will remain the chief of army staff. If, if Imran Khan comes back, it has to be someone else. These two men cannot coexist given the, the polarization of the polity. But I think this will have a very fundamental impact on Pakistan's regional relationship, both with India and Afghanistan. Right On China question, I think Imran Khan has traditionally taken a pro-China stand. So that's very clear. He will again go back to Beijing. He will try to assure Beijing that the situation is under control. Continue with the investment. Continue with the political and strategic investment that you have made on Pakistan over the years, but also kind of encourage relationship with the Russians as he has long been signaling. In fact, Imran Khan was uh, was visiting Moscow on the day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think he's called, he will continue to pursue that policy. And it's, it's ironic that he invokes India uh, as having succeeded in striking the strategic balance between Russia, China on one hand, and, and, and the West on the other, and he wants a similar sort of balancing happening uh, as far as Pakistan goes. But I think the turbulence, the likelihood of more turbulence 
will be in the immediate neighborhood, right? There is a very tenuous ceasefire agreement between the between the Pakistani army and and India, and I think this was something that Imran Khan was opposed to in 2000, 2000, 2021 and twenty you know that that moment when the ceasefire came into effect. Now we need to go back a second to to consider the gravity of that ceasefire. It was very important not just for Pakistan, given what it's going through, but also for India which is having a full-blown mobilization along the entire boundary with contested boundary line with China in the north. India cannot have, cannot afford to have a, a fire exchange or a sustained fire exchange, exchange of fire with Pakistan on the line of control, given the kind of uh, mobilization it has done with China. You don't want that. The ceasefire is actually very important for India as well. Imran Khan or his return to part can dislocate that ceasefire. And that is the, of immense strategic consequence of India. And that is one reason why you can see the Indian establishment, one, has made no official statement about the situation in Pakistan, two, wishes that the army or General Munir prevails, because the only guarantor of the ceasefire between India and Pakistan, India and Pakistan is the chief of Pakistani army. And if that person is someone who's been in, supported by Imran Khan, who has a very clear anti-India populist streak, then that ceasefire goes down the drain. So that's a very active risk in this bilateral. I know there has been a lot of uh, relief and a lot of gloating in India about the situation Pakistan finds itself in. For me, this is just a matter of serious concern. You don't want your neighbor to implode in such a fundamental way that all peace, that whatever is achieved, goes down the drain. Similarly with, with Afghanistan, right? I mean, you have seen surreal statements coming out from uh, from Kabul by the Taliban, who's trying to, who's watching this entire drama with a lot of trepidation, right? Uh, Pakistan-Afghanistan relation took a nosedive from day two after Pakistan-Taliban came to power on 15th of August 2021. And there has been a lot of cross-border drone strikes from Pakistani territory inside Afghanistan. And the Taliban has supported the rise of the Pakistan, uh, the Tariqi Taliban in Pakistan. You cannot have serious conversations of bilateral issues between Afghanistan and Pakistan or any sort of a ceasefire between TTP and, and, and the Pakistani army with this kind of dysfunction. So, so we are seeing a lot of potential turbulence in the sector uh, moving forward. Uh, whether or not Imran Khan comes into power is also kind of secondary given how, how uncertain the situation is. But if he does come back to power, he'll pursue domestic and regional vendetta with, you know, with a lot of commitment. And that is not going to be good for both, either for Pakistan or for the region writ large. So as we speak, hundreds of policemen have gathered outside Mr. Khan's Lahore home and have pledged or vowed to search the premises following Friday afternoon prayers. Now, the, the government and the establishment allege that Mr. Khan is sheltering 30 to 40, they describe them as terrorists, the individuals who played a key role in the protests following Mr. Khan's arrest. So the police allegedly have arrested several of these terrorists this afternoon. Now, while this might be significant potentially in stopping further unrest, what it does give the establishment is the means to detain and possibly charge Mr. Khan again, this time with sedition for allegedly housing or protecting these so-called terrorists. But even if we think that the Imran Khan story is over, and that's a big if, unfortunately his brand of politics is not. We see the rise of nationalistic politics all over the world, whether it's Modi in India or Xi Jinping in China, Erdogan and Orban, and even in America and Britain, with Donald Trump a contender in the 2024 Republican primaries. 
So if you think this is a phenomenon limited to Pakistan, think again, because this might be coming to a country near you. That's all we've got time for on this week's episode of Beyond the Indus. But we look forward to you tuning in next time. Have a great week.